This podcast contains coarse language, dark humor, descriptions of violence, and controversial opinions. Listener discretion is advised. Just warning you up front, I'm still getting over the plague, so my voice isn't 100% yet. But we're back from the nastiness that was the cases for the death penalty. Did you like that one? Did it make you want to put the needle into the veins of the condemned yourself? It was a heavy one. Took me a long time to write it. But now we're back in the Midwest looking at another vast emptiness with crops and cows. Not corn this time, though. They have wheat instead. Every state I've covered so far, with the exception of Iowa, has had something unique or interesting about it in relation to crime. Kansas is no different. You ever heard of a little place called Leavenworth? Over the years, it's held a lot of prisoners for a lot of different reasons. Things like espionage, drug trafficking, and even a few violent crimes. The year 1945 saw 12 German POWs hung for murder. The first person executed in Kansas was the only one who wasn't hung. <laughs> Maybe he was hung. I don't fucking know. But he was executed by gunshot in 1853. Since then, Kansas has put down 56 other men, mostly for murder, a few for rape, and a handful probably for having German-sounding last names in 1945. So grab your Pizza Hut coupons and get into the nearest tornado shelter. We're heading to the Wheat State, of course. Wouldn't be anything else, would it? Family life can be tough, especially for working parents. I'm honestly very thankful to have a job I can escape to for 40 hours a week. Some people can handle staying at home with their kids all the time, but I'm not one of those people. I love them to death and I'd do anything for them, but I need my space, and I'm not afraid to admit that. Things in the 50s were different. I always joke with my husband that I'd be a great 1950s housewife. I could handle the housekeeping, the cooking, and getting slapped around without much complaint. But being stuck at home with too many kids because they didn't understand birth control back then? I don't think so. The men of this era had their own struggles. Providing for a family was expected. This could get expensive for those that didn't know that sex led to pregnancy. Some men were tough and did everything they could to make ends meet and raise their families. And then there were men like James Lammers. There isn't much available online about the lives of the Lammers family. According to court testimony from his brother, uncle, and another acquaintance, James was a dull student and never grew out of the mentality of a child. He didn't read or write much and had only managed to make it to the fifth or sixth grade before leaving school. Later in life, he'd make his living as a bulldozer operator. This job lasted a whopping six weeks before James was fired. A commission of three physicians was brought in to evaluate the man and determine if he was competent enough to aid in his defense. The judge wanted them to, in his own words, ascertain if he is insane, an idiot, or an imbecile and unable to comprehend his position and make his defense. What a time to be alive. The commission did not find this to be the case. He was competent and probably just trying to find a way to get out of his death sentence. The Lammers family home in Troy, Kansas caught fire on December 13, 1950. Neighbors did try to help put the fire out, but were unsuccessful. 
After it was eventually extinguished, the bodies of four people were found inside. Geneva, age 23, and her children, three-year-old Lara May, two-year-old Melva Jean, and nine-month-old Laverne Francis, were all deceased. The children had been asleep during the fire, and it was determined that they died of carbon monoxide poisoning. Geneva's cause of death wouldn't be learned until later on. Initially, the authorities thought that the fire had been caused by the family's oil stove exploding, but it seemed a bit odd that the man of the house was nowhere to be found. He came back into town the day after the fire and claimed that he'd been looking for a job. Someone had apparently recognized his truck while he was in Topeka and told him about the fire. This story didn't add up. The cops were suspicious and asked Lammers to show them where he had traveled to. He took them to two different cities in Missouri and showed them a receipt for gas he had purchased on December 12th. It was obvious that the date had been intentionally smudged and written over. The actual correct date on the receipt was for December 13th, the day of the fire. After this, Lammers took them to a hotel in Topeka and told them about a letter he had written to his wife that was dated December 14th. The police weren't buying it, and on December 15th, Lammers woke up to find that he was being arrested and charged with first-degree murder. His response was, Does it have to be as bad as that? Lammers confessed to what he'd done and even gave an explanation for his actions. His children had driven him crazy. While I completely understand that kids are a fucking pain in the ass sometimes, he had two other perfectly good options. Have a little bit of a break from them and come back. Or go out for a pack of cigarettes and don't come back. Murder really wasn't a good choice. They had three kids already, and Geneva was pregnant again. James Lammers didn't want any more kids. He'd taken Geneva to a doctor and tried to get an abortion, but the doctor refused. His solution to this was to strangle his pregnant wife and then set the house on fire to cover it up, letting the smoke claim the kids' lives as well. It would also come out during the trial that Lammers had been having an affair with a 25-year-old woman named Zada Spencer. Get this, they had a child together. Mr. I don't want any more kids went off with some other bitch and had another kid. Makes perfect sense. He never told Zada that he was married. Lammers apparently even asked her at one point after learning she was pregnant if she'd move into his friend's trailer and take care of said friend's kids. He told her that this friend's wife had died. Lammers proposed to Zada on these conditions, but she declined. Smart woman. These allegations were corroborated, but never confirmed. The defense tried to claim that Lammers had a limited mental capacity and couldn't understand the enormity of his actions, but on March 7, 1951, he was found guilty of two counts of murder and sentenced to death. James Bernard Lammers was executed by hanging on January 5th, 1952. He was just 27 years old. Five lives were cut short because his pullout game was terrible. Why he was only convicted on two counts is a mystery to me. Maybe they lumped all the kids together into one count? I don't know. Such a shame that this young family, with a whole lifetime ahead of them, had to die by the hands of the one who was supposed to protect and provide for them. His last meal was Polish sausage, brown gravy, potatoes, spinach with bacon, gingerbread, cookies, bread with butter, and coffee, which oddly enough was not a special request. 
That's just what was on the menu that day. He declined to ask for anything else, saying, I'll have the same as on the main line. I'm satisfied with that. His last words were, I have been treated very well. In my lifetime, I have murdered 21 human beings. I have committed thousands of burglaries, robberies, larcenies, arsons, and last but not least, I have committed sodomy on more than 100 male human beings. For all these things, I am not in the least bit sorry. That quote sound familiar to you? I try not to cover the big cases, the famous ones. If you're a true crime fan, you've probably already heard them before, and there's really no sense in hashing out the same shit everyone and their dog has covered. But this next one, it's one of those that I looked into when I was a kid, and it's always stuck with me for some reason. Maybe due to how prolific this guy was, or maybe it's his cold, dead eyes. I don't know. Something about his many mugshots makes my stomach turn, but I also find myself hurting for the little boy that he was before he was a murderer. Some people are born into situations that literally break them. I've said it before many times. Violence breeds violence. Carl Panzerum was born in East Grand Forks, Minnesota to East Prussian immigrant parents. That's modern-day Germany, in case you didn't know. Carl was the youngest of seven kids who were all forced to work on the family's farm until truancy laws came into effect and made it illegal for parents to keep their kids home from school. Because they were such great parents, Johan and Matilda sent their kids to school during the day, and then forced them to work in the fields at night. Young Carl would later explain that he'd only get two hours of sleep every night before he'd have to get up and go to school in the morning. I understand that pain. I'm a night shift zombie with kids. Not sleeping will absolutely fuck you up. Forced labor wasn't the only thing the Panzerum family did to their kids, though. Punishments included starvation and being chained up. This environment was obviously not good for the kids. Carl explained that by the age of five, he was already lying and stealing and wasn't very well liked by other children. He was an angry child and just got meaner as time went on. When Carl was just seven, his father Johan abandoned the family. As we all know, a rough upbringing generally contributes a great deal of the necessary ingredients in psychopath soup. Young Carl's first crime was a burglary he committed at his neighbor's house in Minnesota. He broke in and stole everything he could grab, which ended up being cake, apples, and a handgun. The important shit. Unfortunately for Carl, he didn't get away with this. He was arrested and sent to the Minnesota State Training School, which was a reform school for young offenders. As you may be aware, these facilities were very counterproductive. Many stories are available online and in certain true crime podcasts for men who were sent to these schools and abused severely. This school Carl ended up in was located just south of St. Paul and it held approximately 300 boys between the ages of 10 and 20. When Carl arrived, his crime listed on his intake form was incorrigibility and quarrelsome because of his parents' separation. He was taken into an office by a male staff member, stripped naked, and grilled about his sexual preferences and experiences. Education at the school was very important and the boys were expected to pay attention and perform well academically. 
Carl wasn't the best reader due to his lack of a formal education, and he was punished mercilessly for this. He developed a distaste for religion and authority because of the treatment he received. Humans will do just about anything to survive when they're backed into a corner. Carl was no different. After one particularly brutal round of punishment, he put together a device that started a fire in the punishment room. As the building burned to the ground, Carl sat laughing in his bed. Two years into his confinement, he had figured out how to say what the school staff wanted to hear. He convinced them that he was reformed and was released back into the care of his mother. I was reformed all right. I had been taught by Christians how to be a hypocrite and I learned more about stealing, lying, hating, burning, and killing. Matilda was in poor health by this point and couldn't really deal with her son's constant troublemaking. She either didn't know or didn't care about the horrors her boy had gone through during his time at the Minnesota State Training School. She figured he'd grow out of his melancholy moods and propensity toward violence. In January of 1906, when he was just 14, Carl jumped on a freight train and left home forever. While on a train heading west out of Montana, the young boy came into contact with a group of four hobos in a train car. They offered him some new clothes and a warm place to sleep. Being young and naive, Carl accepted. This moment in his life was pivotal. He was already mentally disturbed from everything he'd gone through, but these four adult men gang-raped him. It was this event that permanently changed Carl's outlook on life. He decided that from this point forward, he was going to destroy everything he came into contact with. And goddamn, he wasn't joking about that. Carl got arrested on another burglary charge and sent to a reform school in Montana. His treatment here was so severe that he actually fought back and beat a staff member with a heavy piece of wood. Prison life wasn't for him. In 1907, Carl and another kid named Jimmy Benson escaped from the school. They got their hands on some guns and spent the next month terrorizing nearby towns as they headed east to North Dakota. He and Jimmy separated in Fargo, and Carl headed back west to Montana. He was drinking at a bar by himself one evening when he heard a speech from an army recruiter that would change his life. This very same night, Carl lied about his age and joined the army. He took this great opportunity and shat all over it. Rather than use it to turn his life around and build a career, he refused his work detail the first day he was in uniform and was charged with insubordination. This was the first of many small crimes he'd be jailed for. The man liked his alcohol, that's for sure. His drunken escapades would land him in the stockade and he'd be court-martialed to face larceny charges. Surprisingly, he pled guilty, but that didn't really do much for him. He had to do three years of hard labor in Fort Leavenworth, Kansas, where all federal prisoners served their time. Carl got out of prison in 1910 and had nowhere else to go. Most of his life had been spent in reform schools or locked up in a cell. He had no family left, no girlfriend, hell, no friends at all. While a lot of people grow up and want a good job, a family, and a stable life, Carl never grew out of the bitter mindset that had been beaten into him. He became a hardened criminal. He'd commit many crimes over the next few years in many states, including Utah. I had no idea he spent time here. Every time he was caught, he'd escape. Prison wasn't going to hold him back from being the monster he was meant to be. After breaking into a house in Astoria, Oregon, Carl was arrested and pled guilty to a larceny charge. 
The judge promised to go easy on him, but sentenced him to seven years. The prison he was sent to was notoriously harsh. Inmates were starved, beaten, and isolated frequently. Carl escaped. He was out in the world for a few days before an officer recognized him and tried to arrest him. Carl shot at the man until he ran out of bullets and then was taken into custody. On the way to the jail, he managed to wrestle with the officer and land himself a pretty brutal beating. He went back to the Oregon State Prison and was placed into solitary confinement, but he escaped again. Guards shot at him, but he dodged all of their bullets and made his way into the woods. He left the Pacific Northwest and never came back. Carl's time on the East Coast would see him evolve from robber and rapist into cold-blooded murderer. He purchased a yacht which he sailed around the East Coast. On the Lower East Side of Manhattan, Carl noticed a lot of sailors looking for work while on shore leave. He'd lure these men onto his yacht with promises of work. After a day or so of working, the sailors would drink until they fell asleep, and Carl would shoot him in the head. To dispose of the bodies, he'd tie rocks onto them and throw them overboard near a lighthouse. This went on for a few weeks until the locals started getting suspicious. The last two men he picked up sailed south down the coast of New Jersey with Carl. Along their path, a massive wave smashed the yacht into some rocks and completely destroyed it. Carl swam to shore without his passengers, who had somehow managed to escape near Atlantic City with their lives. After getting into some trouble in Connecticut, Carl stowed away on a ship headed for Africa. He ended up in Angola and got a job as a foreman on an oil rig. During his time here, he raped and murdered an 11-year-old boy. The locals had a feeling Carl was responsible for the boy's death, but they couldn't prove it. Bloodlust is apparently real, and Carl couldn't wait to get his hands on some more victims. At a local bar, he found a group of six men willing to help him with a crocodile hunt. He got them onto his boat and shot all of them in the back. As they lay bleeding out, he finished each one of them off with a shot to the head and fed them to the crocodiles they were supposed to be hunting. Carl then realized he had to leave Angola because many people had seen him talking to the men before they were killed. He went north and robbed some local farmers to get some cash together for a fare to the Canary Islands. After realizing that there wasn't anything valuable to steal here, Carl stowed away on yet another ship, this time headed for Portugal. The government was after him for what he'd done in Angola, so he hit on another ship bound for America. Upon his arrival back in the U.S. in 1922, Carl renewed his captain's license and found the paperwork for his yacht. So, he still somehow had this same boat, right? The one that had crashed into the rocks and been smashed to pieces? No, of course not. His plan was to steal a similar-looking boat and refit it under the name of the old one. He ended up in Salem, Massachusetts. It was here that he encountered 12-year-old George Henry McMahon walking by himself on an errand for his neighbor. Carl struck up a conversation with the boy and walked with him to the store. After leaving, Carl convinced him to go on a trolley ride that landed them in a deserted part of town. You already know what's going to happen. Carl dragged the boy into a secluded area and viciously raped him for three hours before beating his head in with a rock to kill him. After he was finished, he put some branches over the boy's body and left. Two local men saw him leaving the scene, but didn't think much of it and kept walking. 
The next year, on August 9th, 1923, Carl was out hunting for someone to rob when he noticed a young boy begging for money. He pulled a knife on the boy and dragged him out into the woods where he spent several hours sodomizing him before strangling him with his own belt. And if that wasn't bad enough, before leaving this poor kid out in the wilderness alone to be ravaged by animals, Carl raped him again. Carl's violence would pause briefly, but his thievery would not. He made his way up and down the East Coast, robbing people of food and money. In Larchmont, he broke into the train depot and rifled through a bunch of suitcases. An officer approached him as he was doing this. The men wrestled for a bit, but the officer was ultimately able to place Carl under arrest. He'd give the name John O'Leary and confess to other break-ins. Bail was set at $5,000. A deal was made with the prosecution where Carl would plead guilty in exchange for a lighter sentence. He held up his end of the bargain, but the DA didn't, requesting that Carl serve the full five years he was looking at. He was initially sent to Sing Sing Prison, but because he was uncontrollable and violent, he was sent to the Clinton Correctional Facility in upstate New York. This prison was notorious for being cold and brutal. Staff of this prison saw the inmates as animals who deserved abuse. This, of course, led to many prisoners being torn apart mentally and sent across the courtyard to the state hospital for the criminally insane. Carl wanted out of this hellhole. Who wouldn't? He went so far as to climb one of the outer walls, which resulted in a 30-foot fall that broke his legs, ankles, and badly injured his spine. Rather than get him medical attention, the guards carried him back to his cell and dropped him on the floor. In his own words, I was dumped into a cell without any medical attention or surgical attention whatsoever. My broken bones were not set. My ankles and legs were not put into a cast. The doctor never came near me and no one else was allowed to do anything for me. At the end of 14 months of constant agony, I was taken to the hospital where I was operated on for my rupture and one of my testicles was cut off. Carl was thrown into solitary confinement for the last half of his sentence after a guard witnessed him sodomizing another inmate. He got out of prison in July of 1928 and had a new outlook on life. He hated everyone and everything. He was permanently physically disabled after his fall. Within just two weeks of getting out, he was back to his usual tricks. A handful of robberies and a murder later, Carl was arrested again and sent to jail in D.C. He gave his real name for the first time in years. Maybe he'd lost his mind and couldn't keep his mouth shut, or maybe he just didn't care anymore. Whatever the reason, Carl made several remarks to the prison guards about killing children. After doing a bit of digging, they realized he was telling the truth. He was wanted in multiple places. Around this time, Carl met a young guard named Henry Lesser. Henry was the son of Jewish immigrant parents and had only been working at the prison for a short time. While Carl was being processed into the prison, Henry approached him and asked about his crimes. Carl told him that he reformed people. For whatever reason, Henry took pity on this brute and tried to be his friend. He gave him a dollar to buy cigarettes and extra food. This small act of kindness meant the world to Carl, who was used to being abused by his fellow humans. The men developed a friendship, and Henry convinced Carl to write down the story of his life. Writing materials were considered contraband in prison, but Henry supplied them anyway. 
This 20,000-word confession would detail all the things Carl had done during his criminal career. He also wrote about his feelings toward the criminal justice system and blamed his violent acts on the people who had abused him during his life. On November 12, 1928, Carl stood trial for burglary. He confessed on the stand, ultimately sealing his fate. He was found guilty on all counts and sentenced to 25 years. He was shipped off to the federal prison in Leavenworth, Kansas. It all comes full circle. After receiving his sentence, Carl grinned and told the judge to come visit him. He arrived at Leavenworth on February 1, 1929. He was led into the warden's office where he stood quietly as the rules of the institution were explained to him. As soon as the warden was finished with his speech, Carl looked him in the eye and told him, I'll kill the first man that bothers me. Carl was given a job in the laundry room as it was a way for him to be kept away from other prisoners. He couldn't be housed in Gen Pop due to his violence and unpredictability. Carl's supervisor was a man named Robert Warnke, who was known for using his power to punish inmates for even the smallest infractions. He had written Carl up a handful of times, which resulted in solitary confinement. After he got out, he told other inmates to stay away from Robert because he would be dying soon. On June 29, 1929, Carl was doing the laundry as he did every day. In total silence, he picked up an iron bar and approached his supervisor, who was doing paperwork. Carl raised the bar high over his head and brought it down on Robert's head with such force that it crushed his skull immediately. After he hit the floor, Carl kept beating him in the head. The handful of other inmates in the laundry room tried to escape, but the doors were locked. Carl's rage had taken over him, and he chased the other prisoners around the room with the iron bar. Armed guards eventually arrived, and Carl told them he'd killed Robert. He set the bar down, and the door was opened. Carl made his way back to his cell and sat on his bunk without saying another word. The murder trial began on April 14, 1930. Carl refused to have a lawyer on his side. The judge asked for his plea, and unsurprisingly, Carl said not guilty. The state called a ton of witnesses, including some guards, the prisoners who had witnessed the murder, and the warden, who had brought the iron bar with him to court. The jury deliberated for just 45 minutes before finding Carl guilty of murder. He was sent back to Leavenworth and ordered to be held there until his execution date. Carl finally got what he wanted. He was relieved. As he was dragged out of the courtroom, the jurors heard him laughing maniacally. As we've seen in a handful of other death penalty cases, Carl fought any attempts at getting a stay of execution. He wanted to die, but, you know, some people think the death penalty is wrong, even for a convicted rapist and murderer. Several organizations oppose the death penalty for moral reasons. A group known as the Society of the Abolishment of Capital Punishment even wrote to the governor to try to get Carl's sentence commuted. This enraged the man. I always laugh when I read about these situations. People will fight so hard to keep a condemned man alive even if he wants to die. It makes no sense to me at all. I wish the entire human race had one neck and I'd put my hands around it. Charles Carl Panzerum was executed by hanging on September 5, 1930. There was finally an end to the brutality that this man rained down on the world. 
Before he was hanged, he cursed his mother for bringing him into the world and declared his hatred for the human race. This man was no man at all. He was a monster. But was it nature or was it nurture? Was he doomed to be a violent psychopath from birth or did the cruelty he experienced in this life shape him into a vicious beast? There is no excuse for what Carl did, none at all. He got what he deserved in the end and I'm honestly surprised that it took the murder of a prison guard to finally get him a date with the gallows. But I can't help but feel a little bit of heartbreak for the little boy in East Grand Forks, Minnesota that could have made something of himself had he been given the proper support. Carl's famous last words were, Hurry up, you Hoosier bastard. I can kill ten men while you're fooling around. His last meal is nowhere to be found online. Strikes me as the type to deny a last meal altogether, though. Back around the time I was getting into true crime, I also discovered a fascination with World War II and the Nazis. It sounds fucking terrible when I put it that way, but hopefully you get what I mean. All the way back in the Arizona episode, I talked about two German brothers who committed a robbery and a murder and landed themselves in the gas chamber. They were German citizens living in the US, and Germany fought tooth and nail to prevent their executions. This next case is a bit different, from a different era. I've covered a lot of different topics on this podcast so far, but one I haven't breached yet is war criminals, or in this case, prisoners of war. Johannes Kunze was born in the federal state of Saxony, Germany on March 5, 1909. While working as a machinist in Hamburg in 1940, he was drafted into the army and sent to Tunisia to serve in the Africa Corps. He was captured by the Americans there and shipped off to the Tonkawa POW camp in Oklahoma. While here in the States, he decided that he wanted to stay after he was released, rather than go back to Germany. He began silently sharing information about what the Germans were up to by passing notes to an American doctor during sick call. These treasonous actions would have gone unnoticed, and Johannes probably could have gotten his wish to become ein Amerikaner had it not been for a new doctor on call on November 4th, 1943. This new guy didn't know that Johannes was a spy, and also didn't speak German, so he gave the note to another German POW to give back to Johannes. This note made its way to a senior leader of the camp, Walter Bayer, who was a hardened Nazi. In case you didn't pay attention in history class, the Nazis had a very particular way of dealing with things. A lot of things. Treason was apparently one of those things that they didn't tolerate. Bayer convened a court-martial, those were air quotes if you couldn't hear them, that same night, and Johannes was found guilty of treason. Wilhelm Reinhold Johannes Kunze was executed by his fellow German POWs on November 4th, 1943 they beat him to death. I understand that treason is an act punishable by death, but this was not a proper legal battle. He was tried in a kangaroo court and executed in a very unprofessional way, in a country that had no reason to execute him. There's no information on his last words or last meal. He's buried in the Fort Reno Prisoner of War Cemetery in Oklahoma. Sucks they didn't send his body home to Germany to be with his family, but... I guess in the end he got his wish. He stayed in America. A staggering 200 prisoners were questioned in relation to this murder. In total, five German POWs were legitimately court-martialed for the murder of Johannes Kunze. 
First Sergeant Walter Beyer, Staff Sergeant Berthold Seidel, Sergeant Hans Demma, Sergeant Hans Schomer, and Corporal Billy Schultz. I don't know anything about military ranks, but those are the American equivalents to whatever they were in Germany. All of them had blood on their uniforms. This is 1943, so no DNA testing was available, but the circumstantial evidence was glaring. It was pretty obvious who did it and why. The case was prosecuted by Leon Jaworski. It looks Polish, so that, that's what I'm going with. Who would later go on to prosecute in the Watergate scandal. That's a weird bit of nonsense, isn't it? All five men were found guilty and sentenced to death. To their credit, American authorities did try to exchange the men for Allied soldiers being held in Germany, but they weren't able to come to an agreement. Walter Bayer was executed by hanging on July 10, 1945. Why such a long wait? FDR confirmed their death sentences in October of 1944, but because Germany still held Allied prisoners, the U.S. held off on the executions until the war ended so that Germany couldn't retaliate. The gallows was built in an elevator shaft, which works, I guess. It's a fucking weird place to do it, though. Bayer was the first to hang, followed by his lower-ranking comrades. Is that word appropriate here? They're not Ruskies. Whatever, you get what I mean. Their last meal was regular-issued rations of stew, steamed rice, and cake. Bayer's last words were, I can't see why this is being done to me. The rest are unknown. This one has been pretty historical so far, so I figured I'd end on a more recent case. Spring of 2013 was a busy time for a lot of us. I was getting ready to bring my eldest child into the world, and across the country in Ottawa, Kansas, a 28-year-old man named Kyle Flack was also busy, killing innocent people for no apparent reason. In total, Flack would shoot four people to death on different days during the spring of 2013. The body of 31-year-old Stephen White was found in an outbuilding on the farm he'd lived in, covered by a tarp. It was believed he was killed on April 20th. Andrew Stout, also 31, was found under a pile of clothes in his bedroom on this same farm. Police believe he was killed on April 29th. And then on May 1st, Black shot his final two victims. Kaylee Bailey was just 21 when she lost her life. She was found partially clothed with her hands tied behind her back. And the last one is the one that really just makes no fucking sense to me. Haley had a daughter, 18-month-old Lana. Her body was found in a suitcase floating in a creek. So what the fuck happened? This clearly wasn't a case of someone snapping and slaughtering their roommates all at once during an argument. Black stayed at the farmhouse from time to time. He looks like a couch-hopping, meth-smoking high school dropout to me. I'm usually pretty good at reading people, but I'm, I'm unsure with this guy. While he was being questioned, Black claimed that drug dealers may have been involved. These people were determined to not exist. He later said that he killed Andrew and Steven during a fight about rent. This makes a bit more sense, but of course this wouldn't be expanded on because Black asked for a lawyer at this time. Prosecutors took him to trial on two counts of capital murder, four counts of first-degree murder, one count of criminal possession of a firearm, 
and one count of rape. Yep, it was alleged that he raped Kaylee before he shot her. What a fucking class act. Black was convicted on all the murder charges and given a death sentence in 2016. After that, he tried to get a new trial on the grounds that the incriminating statements he'd made to the cops were given after he'd invoked his right to remain silent. The problem here, and this is often a problem, is that you have to explicitly tell them you want a lawyer. You can sit there in silence, but you can't start running your mouth and then backtrack and say, maybe I should get a lawyer. You have to tell them you want one and that you're done talking. Flack didn't do that. His mental illness was also brought up by the defense. Apparently he had severe mental illness that caused him to hear voices. Sounds a lot like this guy might have been methed up. Kyle Trevor Flack still sits on death row in Kansas. He doesn't currently have an execution date scheduled, and the most recent article I can find is from February of 2022. He took his case to the Supreme Court and argued that his Miranda rights were violated. Repeatedly telling the cops, take me to jail, isn't the same thing as I want a lawyer. I guess we'll just have to wait and see how this one gets resolved. The Supreme Court apparently hasn't ruled on it yet. Well, that's it for the Pizza Hut state, for now at least. A lot of military stuff here, but I guess that makes sense because it's a vast open wasteland. I'm kidding. I've never been out that way, so I can't say for sure. They still have the death penalty, and they hand it out to some sick motherfuckers, let me tell you. But they haven't put anyone down since it was reinstated. Maybe one day I'll do a recent executions episode or start putting out death penalty news videos when I can get over my fear of being on camera and we can talk about Kansas again. If you enjoyed this episode, please tell a friend, drop a like, subscribe for more, all that good stuff. I'm available on Rumble as well as most podcast apps. You can get me on Instagram and Twitter at LastMealPod. First is the man who dies, but the evil done by him survives. See you next time.